So we're going to keep going in our prayer mini-series today, and we have different teachers like every week during this series, and you know who next week is? Isaac, voice of an angel, Schmidt. Yeah, so here's, here's, so here's what needs to happen. Invite your neighbors, invite your friends, invite people off the street. We got to get 500 people here, and if he's not nervous enough already, we'll make him nervous, all right? So Get ready for that. Uh, But yeah, go ahead and flip to Matthew 6. We're going to keep going in our Teach Us to Pray series. And we we do have a a different speaker every week in this series, which I think is is kind of fun because we're we're breaking this prayer down into small sections and we'll get different perspectives on that prayer every week. We'll have a couple guest speakers coming in, that type of thing. And so, yeah, we're excited about this series. We're thankful you guys are a part of it. So I'm going to dive right into it. So let me go ahead and read this prayer for you. If you have your Bibles, follow along. Matthew 6, I'm going to start in verse 9. Uh, Otherwise, it should be on the screens as well. So Jesus teaches us to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this morning we'll be focusing in on that first section of the prayer. So it's our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're just going to look at that, that simple chunk. And this, this is a prayer full of requests. And, and what I love about this prayer is that the first chunk starts out with requests to God that he would make his name known that he would make it famous in the world. And so that's what we're focusing on today. And the first request is this, hallowed be your name. Just sort of a weird, like kind of old-timey English way to say that. So all that means is holy be your name. Let your name be set apart. Let it be different. Let it be other than. And which is a little bit of an interesting thing to pray, right? Because God's name already is holy. Right, You praying, make your name holy, is not going to make God any more holy than he already is. But what this is saying is help us to respect your name. Let us see it and believe it as holy. Which is sort of an interesting request right off the bat. And I think it makes sense because one of the, th- the first things that we bump up against in prayer is God's holiness. So, so I don't know if you know this or not, but when you pray, you're talking to God. Okay, mind blown, right? Write that down, like incredible definition. But I want you to think about this. You walk into God's presence and then you start talking. That's terrifying. Like, okay, imagine if you're giving an address to the United Nations and you have the most powerful leaders in the world sitting in front of you and you walk up there to talk. How are you going to feel? Maybe some of you are a little overconfident, but I would be terrified. I'd be stressed, right? Okay, this is God. Like, he holds the world in his hand like a little ball. He, he decides if you get breath or not. He's holding your existence right now. So, so when I was thinking about this, I, I thought about Isaiah 6, which is, I think, this incredible picture of what it's like to walk into the holy presence of God And this is what happens is the prophet Isaiah gets this vision of who God is. And it's a vision of God's throne room. And there's these angelic beings that are so sort of 
amazed by God's holiness, that they're covering their faces. Okay, angels, perfect beings, covering their faces. And they're screaming back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and this place is, is so real because of the presence of God and probably because these angels are screaming that it's literally shaking. And there's smoke starting to fill up the room. And then Isaiah walks in on this. And this is what he says, Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he walks in, and the, and the first thing he says, woe is me, which is something along the lines of, uh-oh, like, I, I deserve to die. Why? Because he's experiencing how much bigger and better God is and compared to his weakness and sinfulness. So here's what's true. When you walk into the throne room of God, it becomes immediately obvious that you don't belong there. That you're engaging with this being who is categorically different, categorically better than you and I are. And in the second we go to open our mouths to talk to God, there's this tension between his holiness, which equates to his, his justice and his anger towards sin and our brokenness. That's the immediate tension that we should feel when we walk into his presence. And when I was thinking about this, I thought about my mom. So my mom her name is, is Brenda. We affectionately call her B-Ren. She's the B-Ren. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what we call her. And B-Ren was famous in my hometown. There's a lot of people here from my hometown. There's like a Garner, Iowa pipeline in this church. And you guys remember B-Ren. She was famous around my neighborhood because she was like an awesome Midwest mom. She, so people would show up in my house, I think partially to hang out with me, but mostly because my mom was making food all the time. And she made these brownies that were like, they were just out of a box, but they were made with love, you know, and, and you couldn't beat them. And so she was like famous for being this awesome mom, but she was also famous for something else. It was what was known as the wrath of B-Ren. And you would, you would walk through the hallways of school the, the day after somebody got the wrath and there would be sort of reverent whispers about the wrath. Like people knew about this. There was one time we were at Perkins and it took 45 minutes to get our food and that manager had no idea what was coming. And after a couple minutes of the wrath, there was a full grown man crying in Perkins my mom sometimes listens to my messages. Sorry, mom. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell that story. I was, anyway, uh, the wrath of B-Ren was real, but my favorite wrath of B-Ren story is this one time my sisters and I were in my front yard and we built this snowman, which really, when you think about it, isn't impressive. It's literally just a stack of snow. But when you're a kid, you think this is the greatest thing in the world. And we put the carrot nose in there and all this stuff. And for us, this was like the Mona Lisa. This was like the greatest thing that ever happened. So we walk inside, we take our boots off. We're proud of ourselves. We're drinking hot cocoa and we're looking at our snowman in the yard. And then I see this punk older kid walk past and he walked past and he looked at my snowman and he walked into my yard and knocked the head off of my snowman. And I was immediately mortified, but I wasn't the only one who saw it. 
My mom was also looking out the window and I heard her whisper, oh no, you don't. And she bolted. And so my mom was outside and this kid was still in our yard. And I remember looking at this kid and there was just this like abject terror on his face. And this kid literally took off running and my mom sprinted after him. And so all I saw was like through the window, but then about 30 seconds later, my mom came back dragging this kid by the collar and stood in our front yard while he rebuilt my snowman. <laughs> my mom's awesome. So in that moment, I loved that wrath. Like the mama bear wrath was on my side and it was protecting me. But that kid did not love the wrath. He had a very different experience of it than I did, right? Because depending on what side of the wrath you're on is whether it's good or bad for you. Okay, so this is, this is what I want to say. Whether God's wrath and holiness is beautiful to you or terrible to you is entirely dependent on whose side you're on. It's entirely dependent on if you're his kid or not. And that's why this prayer has to start with the phrase, our father. It's the precondition through this whole prayer. But I want you to know something. It's not automatic that you're God's kid. There's kind of this idea, right, that, that God created everybody, so we're all his sons and daughters. That's true in a very narrow sense. But what this prayer is referring to is something much different and much deeper. It's a personal relationship with the God of the universe where you have turned from your self-salvation projects and turned to him as your only opportunity to be in his presence, where he's become the controller and ruler of your life, where you're saying your will be done, not my will be done, where you've trusted him entirely instead of yourself. That's what it means to enter into a relationship with God and, and I got to tell you, not everyone is a son or daughter of God. Not everyone in this world and not everyone in this room. And if you aren't on his side, if you aren't his son or daughter, you, you can't expect for your prayers to be answered. Because the first step is having relationship with the one that you're praying to. But if you know him as your dad, if you've come into relationship with him, you can come to him into his throne room with confidence. And I want to talk about how that happens. But first, I just want to acknowledge for some of you, maybe a lot of you, the idea of God as your father is not actually a very comforting idea because you had a rough relationship with your father. Your father didn't represent for you what God is like. Or maybe you had a great relationship with your father, but even that fell short of who God is. When we're talking about God as father, don't base it on your perceptions of your human father. Base it on what God has done for you on his character and who he is. And so I want to tell you who he is and what he's done to have relationship with you. This is the way that you become God's kid is he adopts you into his family. You're not by default in God's family. He has to adopt you and bring you into God's family. So a lot of you know Nate and Jenna Weichel. They're, they're members of this church, and they're in the middle of an adoption process. And, and adoption is, 
is beautiful. It's amazing. It's one of the best pictures. Nate and I were actually talking about this before we came in. It's one of the best pictures that we know of, of what the gospel is, of, of what God is like, is to, to reach out and choose to love a child and to bring them into your family. And it's awesome, Nate and Jenna, that you guys are doing that. It's also really hard. It's been really hard for them. If you know their story, it's been a long process. And Jenna actually left a while ago because she wanted to go get her kids and bring them home. And some of the process was falling through. And she left in in April. So for context, there was snow on the ground, which is another story. But there was snow on the ground when she left and she's been gone that long, right? And so it's, it's both beautiful and amazing, but it's also costly. So actually adoption, I wanted to throw this out. Adoption is costly, it's one-sided, and it gives you a new name. It's costly, it's one-sided, and it gives you a new name. So first off, it's costly. What does it cost the Weichels? Which, by the way, Nate, I'm not sure if where you're at, but... Anyway, I'm, I'm talking to you in this, man. Like, I, this is an example in my sermon, but I want you to know, man, keep going. We're in this with you as a church. I know it's hard. It's worth it, dude. Keep going. Um, but yeah, adoption is costly. How much has adoption cost the Weichels? It, it costs them financially, right? But it costs them a lot more than that. It's cost them time apart. It's, it's really kind of consumed their life through this period of time. It's going to cost them a lot throughout their life as they try and raise those kids. God willing, they're able to bring them home. But it's infinitely more costly for God to adopt us. Why? Because it cost them his son. They had never been been separated. They had never been out of relationship, but God was willing to give up his son and to give his son his wrath, his anger, his holiness towards sin so that we wouldn't have to experience it. It was infinitely costly for him. Adoption is one-sided. So Nate and Jenna didn't have tryouts for their kids. At least I hope not. It's not like they brought their kids over to the States and were like, all right, show us your stuff. And they did like a talent show and then they picked the best ones. No, what happened? What drew Nate and Jenna to their children? It wasn't their strengths. It was their need. It was their weakness. And they were drawn to that because they wanted to provide love in the middle of weakness. That's what God's like. God is not drawn to you because of what you can offer him. He's not drawn to you because of your talents and your abilities. He's not drawn to you because you're impressive. He's drawn to you because you're weak and you desperately need him. And he wants to love you even when you can't love him back. Okay, this is what you have contributed to your salvation. Weakness, need, hurt, pain, sin. And you know what God did? He looked at you and he said, yep, that's the person that I wanna love. It's this one-sided initiating love. And of course, you respond in love back to him, but he first loved you. And lastly, adoption gives you a new name. One day, God willing, those kids are gonna walk through the Weichel's front door and they're gonna walk into a life of new privileges, of new opportunities They're going to walk into a life where their needs are going to be met, but not only their needs, their dreams, their desires, stuff that they never really could have imagined they're going to have. Why? Because they will be Weichels. 
They'll have a new name, and along with that new name, they'll have all of the privileges associated with that name. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, here's your name, son or daughter of God. And you know what that means? is that you can walk into all of the privileges of being God's kid. And it means that Jesus now is like your brother and God treats you the way that he treats Jesus. You have privilege and benefits beyond what you can imagine. But the best benefit of adoption is this. Those kids, yeah, they're gonna love the stuff. They're gonna love the the provision that Nate and Jen are gonna be able to provide for them. But what will they love or need the most? Nate and Jenna themselves they will be able to say that they have a dad who loves them. They'll get the Weichels themselves. And when you know Jesus, the greatest benefit that you have is not the the stuff that comes along with salvation. The greatest benefit that you have is that you get God himself. And so this is what that means for prayer is you can walk into the Holy of Holies, this big, scary throne room, and you can crawl up on God's lap like he's your dad and you can talk to him. One of the greatest benefits of being a son or daughter of God is that you get to pray. You, you get to just talk to that God. You can talk to him about anything you want, about your needs, your desires, your wishes, about what's going on in your life. You can just tell him about it. You can have relationship with him. That's crazy. And, and this is a side note. I, I, there's a lot of requests in this prayer, and that's a good thing. And I want to talk about using prayer as a way to get things done in the world, that prayer actually matters, it actually works. But I don't want you to miss the fact that the best thing about prayer is that you get to talk to your father. You get to have relationship with him. You get to know the God of the universe. That's crazy. And so don't just pray to get stuff done. Pray to know God. To, to realize how dependent you are on him and to spend time with him. That's a relationship, right? Hopefully you ask your, your spouse or, or your mom and dad for things that you need, but hopefully you do a lot more than that. You laugh, you cry, you share a relationship. You can do that with God. You can know him. For me, what that looks like is I get up in the morning and I try and spend time with him every day. It doesn't always happen. But, but when it does, I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll read the Bible and I try and read fast and read slow. Here's what I mean by that is I just sit down and I open up the Bible and I read it, it like, a, like a novel. We do weird stuff with the Bible because there's those chapters. And so we think we just read one chapter and then we're done. Okay. Yeah, but the chapters sometimes are like half a page. Do you do that with any other book? Just sit down and, and read it. Sometimes I'll set my alarm clock for like 15 minutes and I'll just read for 15 minutes. So that's reading fast. And then I'll read slow. So I go back and I, I pick out something that stuck out to me and I just read it and I think about it and I process it until it lands. You, you know what I mean? I hope you know what I mean with that. There's a difference between just reading something and it becoming meaningful to you, it, it mattering to you. And so that's God talking to me. That's what the Bible is, by the way. God wrote you a story. He wants you to know about himself and he wants you to know about you. And so he wrote you a story a letter. So you read it. And then I talk back to him about my life, about the stuff that I'm worried about, about the, the chapter that I just read in the Bible. And we have a conversation and it's not always great and amazing and life-changing, 
But I talk to God because I want to know him. And I'm getting to know him more throughout the years. And I, I want you to talk to your father. Talk to him. Okay, let's keep going. One of the other benefits of being a child of God is not just that you can talk to your dad, but you can be a part of his kingdom, a part of his kingdom. So this is verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the the word kingdom is, is a term that we throw around a lot, but I'm not sure if we really know what it means. So there's a lot of ways that you can get at it. One of the better ways that I've heard it described is by an author, Graham Goldsworthy. And he says this, the the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So think about how the Bible opens up. It opens up in a garden and you have God's people. God and Adam and Eve have a relationship together. God is walking through the garden with people, and they're talking to him like a friend. So they're his people. They're in his place, this beautiful garden. We focus a lot on like the tree that they weren't supposed to eat, but everything else in that garden was beautiful. It was perfect. It was amazing. They're in God's place with him, and then they're under God's rule. They trust him, and so they listen to him. They obey him. They want to follow him. But then then you know what happens. They fall, right? They sin. But I, I want you to see We've talked about this some. There's something more going on there than just breaking the rules. There's a transfer in kingdoms. So God is on his throne and we were following him. We were obeying him. But now what we've said is, you know what? Actually, we don't want to be under your authority. We want to do our own thing. I don't want you to be King Jesus. I want to be King. And we create this this counterfeit kingdom to God's. And so what happens? We're no longer really God's people. We don't have the same relationship with him that we used to. We're not in God's place. They got kicked out of the garden, so they can't be in this amazing place that God has made for them. And we're no longer under God's rule. We're trying to follow our own desires instead of his desires for us. And because of that, we're under this hostile rule in the world. That's part of the reason that we see some of the junk in this world that we see, the sin, the suffering, the pain, is because we're under this this counterfeit kingdom and it's hostile towards us. We're enslaved by it. So I I talked a couple weeks ago about Louis Zamperini. He was a, a World War II pilot who went down in the, in the Pacific. He, he survived in the Pacific with a couple friends for 47 days. And that wasn't even probably the hardest part of what happened because he landed in Japanese-occupied territory and became a prisoner of war, a POW, for, for two years. And what happened to him is some of the things that you would imagine happened. There was, there was torture. There was um, one of the things that, that they talked about that was one of the hardest things for him is that he felt like he started to lose his humanity. And, and they didn't have news of the war, and so they really lost their hope. They were prisoners of war. But then something happened. They started seeing more and more American planes flying off in the distance and and the sounds of war got closer and closer to them. And then some of the guards started behaving weirdly and they were nervous that what was going to happen is they actually all were going to die as the Americans got closer. 
But then one day they saw this plane flying overhead and it was flying right at them. And they actually thought it was an enemy plane. But as they're staring up in the sky, they see this plane fly overhead that has an American flag on it. And they were free. And they started dropping news that the Americans had won the war and how it had happened. And, and they dropped food. And, and these guys are seeing food like this for the first time in like two years. So they throw themselves a party. I don't know if you remember the movie Heavyweights. This reference is only going to hit a couple of you. But it's one of my favorite movies. It's just, it's about what they call a fat camp. And they go away to camp. But then they throw this revolt. And, and they get out of it. And then they discover all the food. And there's this one image burned in my brain of this large shirtless man just drinking Hershey's syrup. Okay, I feel like this moment was like, like that for the Americans. They were free, right? And they threw themselves a party because they were free. They were liberated, right? Here's what's true. We're under a hostile kingdom. We've been enslaved to our sin. We've been enslaved to a world that, that is not the way that Jesus intended for it to be. And there's this story of this over and over again throughout the Old Testament, but, but then the New Testament opens up in Matthew 3, it said this about Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why? Because the king has come. And he's come to set us free. And he shows up and he liberates us from this oppressive bondage that we were under, this, this sinful tendency that we were enslaved to. And he sets us free. But the thing that's different about Jesus' story that he's writing in the world and Louis' story is that we don't get to go home immediately. Why? Because Jesus tells us something and this is what he says. He sets us free. And then he says, there's other POWs out there. I want you to go find them. And I want you to tell them that I'm coming for them that the king has come. I want you to tell him about the good news. Tell him that they can be free and he sends us out. And yeah, we're gonna get to go home someday, but in the meantime, we're telling other POWs that they can be free because the king has come. And that's the reason that this, that this church exists is to see the kingdom of God come and his will be done on this city and, and specifically on this campus. I want to see his kingdom come here. Like what, okay, so the U is, is known for a lot of things, right? It's known for being a part of this cool city that we're a part of. It's, it's known for its engineering and medicine and academics. What if it was known as a place where you could come to know Jesus? What if it was known as a place where this movement of God was happening that no one could explain? What if it was hard to walk on this campus and not know that you could know him? What would that be like? We saw it start to happen last year. What if God doubles it this year? What if he wants to do even more? What would it be like if we moved to Midpoint Event Center and we saw that community that that place is in transformed? What if people with no connections to this church saw something about our joy and who we are and they wanted to come and be a part of it? What if this, this city would feel it if our church wasn't here because of the impact that we had in introducing people to Jesus and in loving and serving this city? What if people from different backgrounds, religious backgrounds and non-religious backgrounds of different ethnicities and races all came in to hear Jesus? What if, what if sin was talked about in the past tense? Like, yeah, that's a sin that I, that I used to not be able to get out of, but Jesus has brought me out of that. What if divorces were held off and marriages were saved? What if Bibles were opened up and read? And what if we believed it? 
We're seeing pieces of his kingdom coming, but what if he wanted to do more? You want to come? You want to be a part of that? We've got this thing coming up in a couple weeks. We were talking about this mission, Twin Cities. This is our opportunity to, to see Jesus do something amazing. And we have that opportunity every day, but this is an emphasis that we're putting on. Don't you want to come? I think it's going to be awesome. I want to see Jesus' kingdom come here. And sometimes that looks extraordinary and sometimes that looks incredibly normal and simple, but Jesus will do this. He will write that story with or without you, but you want to be a part of it. It'd be an awesome life. It'd be a hard life, but it'd be an awesome life. But we want to see his will done. not just through our effort, not just through our energy, but through our prayers. Do, do you believe that you praying for that to happen matters? Like, are you praying that Jesus would do something like that in this city? Do you believe that prayer actually works? I don't know exactly the intricacies of how this all works, of like God's in control, yet our prayers still matter. But I know the Bible told me that our prayers matter. And so I want to believe him and I want to take him up on that. Are you believing that you praying for that kingdom to come actually will change the world, actually will make a difference? And if you say yes, what, what would your life say about that? Would your prayers actually say that that matters to you? Here's for me where this gets hard a couple ways. Overconfidence. I'm struggling with this right now. So last year at this time when we were about to launch this church, I knew I was desperate and I had no idea if any of you guys were going to show up and it was straight up terrifying. And we set up all this stuff and it was going to be super awkward if no one came and we thought that was a real possibility. I maybe shouldn't have, but I did. And, and so you know what happened? I prayed because I knew that I was desperate I'm struggling to pray like that this year. Even though I need Jesus just as much to come through like he did last year. I'm as dependent on him as I was. But I, he did it last year and so I'm assuming that he'll do it again and I'm presuming on his grace. And so I'm fighting that. Sometimes I struggle with, with being underconfident. Like do you actually think that God hears you and will answer you? Do you believe that he can do something amazing? I think a lot of you do or at least have in the past and you have stories of God coming through for you over and over again. I, I want to beg you to remember those stories. Maybe a good practical thing is, is prayer journal. Write down your prayers and then go back every month and see how many of them God answered. Or maybe some of you haven't really experienced that because you really haven't prayed for big things in your life. I, I want to invite you into that. I dare you to pray something big to God and watch what he does. Am I guaranteeing you that he'll answer it the way that you want him to? No, absolutely not. But you will see God do something amazing in this world if you'll start paying attention. Are you actually asking him for it? But we need to not only pray for God's will to come through you to other people. We got to ask him to do his will in us. Your will be done. Okay, so what's God's will for your life? That's a big question that we get like sidetracked on and freaked out about. Let me tell you God's will for your life. That you look at what he's told you to do, that you look at the way that he's asked you to live and that you do it and that you repent when you don't. That you do your best to actually live the way that Jesus has asked you to live and then trust him when you struggle with that. So this, this concept of your will be done comes in the middle of 
the most convicting sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And he just got done in Matthew 5, laying out these ways that we're supposed to live. And he says some crazy stuff Jesus does. He says, hey, you, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. Hopefully most of us are good in that category. Uh, like raise your hand if you haven't. No, we're not going to do that. But hopefully we're all fine there. But then what Jesus says is actually, if you've been angry with someone in your heart, it's as if you've murdered them. Why? Because he sees your heart and your motivations, not just what you do. He says, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm actually telling you, you shouldn't look at a woman with lust in your heart. He says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, the way that a person dying of thirst in the desert longs and is consumed by water, longing to be consumed by righteous living. He's, he's asking us to follow him. And so when you pray, God, would your will be done in my life? What you're saying is you're asking God to help you fight sin tooth and nail for every inch in your life. God's will be done in your life often means that your will isn't. Are you ready to actually pray that? And here's the tension of this is, is we're, a, we're a giant conglomeration in this room of people who, who didn't do God's will this week. And yes, we did his will to some degree, but we're also people who have fallen short and haven't done his will. Why? Maybe for a couple of you, it's because you didn't know what you were supposed to do. You didn't know that you weren't doing his will. But for most of us, it's because we just didn't want to. We wanted our will, not his we had the right information, but at the end of the day, we simply didn't want to do it. That's why we have to pray. Because we desperately need Jesus' help to help us do his will. We're not very good at it. We need him to help us. Are you asking him to help him look more like Jesus? But luckily, I hope we feel a little bit of that sting of what it means to ask God for his will to be done in our life. But luckily, Jesus is a lot better at following God's will than we are. The, the best example that, that we have of that is Jesus in the garden shortly before he goes to the cross. And he's in stress. He's, he's crying. He's, he's sweating drops of blood because he knows what's coming and this is what Jesus prays. God, would you, would you take this away from me? And you know what God says? He says no. Why? Because he wanted to say yes to you. And what does Jesus say back to that? Your will be done. I trust you. I will follow you. I want your will, not mine. And he's a lot better at it than we are. And so we can stand not on the fact that we're great at following his will, but that we have a savior who is great at it. But even as we're in that tension of wanting to obey God, wanting to follow him, but not fully being able to, we look forward to the day where the prayer, God, your will be done, will be answered. So if you were to look at the world right now and the way that it is, I don't know if you would conclude that Jesus is on the throne. Honestly, if you were to look at my life at times, I don't know if you would conclude that Jesus is on the throne. That's because we live in the tension of those two kingdoms, the kingdom of sin and death and the kingdom of Jesus and life. 
But the hope of Christians is that the day is coming when Jesus will answer the prayer, your kingdom come in full where God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because heaven will be earth. Jesus is bringing a new heavens and a new earth. And here's what that means is that there's no more separation between us and God. And this place will be renewed. It'll be made new and it will become like heaven. And here's what will happen is that God's will will be done. On that day, doing good will be natural for you. It'll be like breathing. It'll just happen. Can you imagine what that'll be like to not only not sin, but not want to? Jesus is going to answer this prayer in full. Hallowed be your name. His name will be holy. He'll sit on his throne. Your kingdom come. This entire place will be his kingdom. Your will be done. We will actually do what he's asked us to do. He'll answer that prayer. And so ask him for that day and ask him to bring little tastes of that day here and now. Ask him to bring a little bit of heaven to earth through you and then hope for that day. Let me pray. Jesus, I can't wait for that. I'm, I'm sorry for the ways that I, I don't do your will, but I'm thankful that you don't hold those against me and that one day we're gonna get to see this place renewed that we'll see your will be done. We'll see you honored the way that you should be honored. And we're not going to see that in full here, but we want to see little pieces of it. We want to be a part of it. We want to give people a little taste of heaven when they encounter us. And so would you help us? Jesus, would your kingdom come? Would you make your name known here? Would you establish yourself here? Would your will be done through us and in us? And we wait for that day when we're going to get to see you in heaven, when we'll see that prayer fully answered. And thanks that you've promised us that we can be your kids, that we have access to your throne. That's awesome. And so we celebrate that, that we're not separated from you anymore, but that we've been adopted into your family. And we praise you that we get to be a part of it. We love you. Amen.